Being a great father takes a massive amount of courage. Instead of being an amazing leader and a decent dad, I want to be an amazing dad and a decent leader. The oldest dad in the world gave you this assignment, which means you must be ready for it. As a dad, I get on my knees and I fight for my kids. Let us be those dads who stop the generational pass down of trauma. I want encounters with God where he teaches me what to do with my kids. I know I'm going to be an awesome dad because I'm going to give it my all. This is episode 220 of Dad Awesome, and today we have Gary Black joining for a conversation. Uh, I mentioned this last week. After today's episode, we're going to go into the top 10. Now, they're not necessarily the top 10, like the best Dad Awesome conversations, but the next 10 weeks leading up to Father's Day are going to be looking back, and it's like a start here. If you're inviting someone else to, to listen to Dad Awesome for the first time, these are 10 of the conversations that are like, these are foundations. It's like a start here. This is the core to why we exist. So I will be curating back through. We've probably interviewed around 180 guests in the 220 weeks. So there's certainly some conversations that are part one, part two. There's been a few times we've replayed episodes. Uh, I should actually have that count specifically. It's between 150 and 180 guests on the podcast. But that's what's coming up the next few weeks. Today, though, Gary Black, uh, I was uh, strongly recommended after my conversation with Seth Barnes about six months ago. He's like, Gary Black is your guy. There's certain people that in my research for an interview, I receive so much value, so much of a blessing, so many challenges. And and I spent probably four to six hours of time researching and preparing for this conversation with Gary Black. And I felt like he spent a week with me, that I had someone who just spent a week of time helping encourage and counsel and pray for me. That's how I felt just in the research. So this is one of those conversations that if I would have uh, lost the recording or it ended up not happening, a reschedule, it didn't happen, I received so much value just from the research. So you can only imagine how much the conversation is going to be helpful for you guys. But also check out the show notes today. After you listen today, get into the show notes. There's a video series I'm going to recommend. There's several other um, resources from uh, Gary and his wife, Lisa. So, so, uh, so excited. Buckle up, take notes. This is episode 220 my conversation with Gary Black. I heard you and your wife dialoguing about, and it's horrible, wonderful, horrible, wonderful. And, and this idea that, and maybe it'll even pair a little bit with this um, Richard Rohr quote that we've talked about before in the podcast, but it's, uh, it's this quote that pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. So this idea that we should expect, we shouldn't be avoiding pain. We shouldn't expect yes. that we're not going to encounter horrible. What would you talk about that principle and how it, how it plays out? Oh in yeah. Dad Change, life? Changed my life. Changed my life. I mean, again, Richard Rohr, I don't, always uh i'm okay with his all of his conclusions but you know i'm like i love i love his meat right Mm -hmm. and about 18 20 years ago i started studying initiation of young men and what that actually looks like because america is the only country that hasn't and then read you know reading his book adam's return the five promises of male initiation changed my life Mm -hmm. Uh, number one number two his book everything belongs where he talks about your pain belongs Mm -hmm. And your porn addiction, it belongs. Quit trying to get rid of everything and ask the father why it's in your life, what it's trying to teach you. Own the pain of that. Sit in it, not anesthetize it. Don't don't drink it away. I learned how to do this in Spain. We lived there for five years. We just got ripped out with COVID. 
And I would literally sit down on the med and I would not anesthetize, just refused because I would transmit my pain and anger on my wife, my kids. And it was just time to own that and be transformed by it and transform people, transform people. Right. And in our lives, like you said, the way you started, this is everything is amazing. God, I mean, again, up, I'm looking at Pike's Peak this morning with snow coming down, you know, light, fluffy snow. I'm like, okay, dad, let's just spend some time together and work from rest. And then things are always kind of horrible. They're wonderful and horrible in our life, right? And so when you get that phone call, that's really tough today. What, how are you going to hold that? If you're allowing God to, to transform that pain in you and, that, and wound your wounds, I like to talk about, you're going to handle a good call and a bad call the same. It's not going to sh- throw you off emotionally. Anyway, that's, that's really that whole thing for me is, is how we own our pain really determines our life. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back into that with different chapters of your story. Because I, I was just hoping, Gary, you could take us into your story um, way way back, right? And trusting God even in the um, you and your three little boys when you were a single dad for that chapter. So maybe take us way yeah. back. And uh, I'll interrupt you a few times because I have specific questions okay. about a couple no, of no, chapters of your story. But yeah, go after it. We'd love to, love to hear your story. I love it, Jeff. So I'll go as quick as I can. I, you know, just raising the church uh, very conservative Christian missionary Alliance. And then we found Holy spirit. My mom baptized me in Holy ghost when I was seven. I just prayed in tongues for like three hours, never have stopped. Um, my, we, we started going to a Pentecostal church. So kind of religious and weird, but you know, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. So around 16 to 17, of course, I kind of rebelled against that. I just felt there was something missing and something more. And I, I kind of went on a journey, uh, was very successful in business at a young age. Uh, so a lot of drugs, a lot of partying, a lot of women got a young lady pregnant. Um, and when I found out she was pregnant, I was 22. Um, I stopped everything. I, I was doing cocaine. I was getting high most days, drinking, stopped everything. I said, Father, if you're going to give me a son to steward, I better learn how to do this well. And I held Tyler, my oldest son, up to a window in the hospital. And I just, I, I was transformed in that moment, Jeff. I don't know how else to say it. 10 years, no drinking, no nothing, right? So I, I'm literally the VP of sales for a large telecom company in downtown Denver. And my pastor at the time was discipling, first man who ever discipled me. I was his youth pastor, but too egotistical. So he had to make me go teach four-year-olds for a while, which was really good for me. Uh, we went out to this deal, met this guy named Lou Engel. The ground where we stood shook, literally, like Holy Spirit. We were all on the ground, just underneath the power of Holy, Holy Spirit. And we all went out to uh, Kansas City, sat in this conference with this guy named Mike Bickle, 5,000 people in there. Paul Kane was on stage, this kind of famous prophet that just died recently. He calls me out 5,000 people and says, you have a demon of injury on your life. You've broken 17 bones. Your dad was a bull rider, broke all these bones. He said, your son's a year and a half, has already broken two bones. And he cast this thing off me. And I meet Jesus in a radical way, Jeff. I just didn't know him intimately. And I had a full-on vision of me dancing with Jesus in front of Pikes Peak in a golden field. And he just spoke his affections over me, who I was as a son, who I was going to be as a father, you know, all these affections. And I kept going, no, my mom, my dad radically changed my life. I kind of came to, came back home, quit my job, moved to Kansas City and started a ministry called Rock the Nation. Um, My... (laughs) You know, we were cleaning abortion clinics, movie theaters. We didn't have any money uh, trying to raise support, start this ministry. And my wife uh, was mentally ill. Um, She had bipolar, uh, borderline, would always break the house apart, would always uh, beat us up, pull guns, all kinds. They made a documentary of our life before our 
middle son had passed. Um, I thought I could fix her, Jeff. I had that Jesus complex that most young men have that are in, stuck in their first half of life and think it all revolves around them. And I thought I could fix her. So I had another baby and then a third uh, son with her. So we had three boys. Uh, the adultery continued. Um, our ministry started to explode. Uh, we literally started a small movement that turned into a prayer and fasting movement. Uh, that's now the send and the call and the yeah. one thing. And um, so we did prayer storms. We'd gather young people together and pray and fast for America for a week. And they, these kids would literally fast back then, Jeff. I mean, we would make burgers for those that wouldn't, we wouldn't sell any. Uh, it was powerful. Like we had encounters with angels and demons and just really cool stuff in the nineties. My house, my home life was a mess. I didn't want to go home. My kids were, you know, in a, in a really abusive situation. Couldn't fix it. 1999, um, on the stage, 10,000 kids in the auditorium at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. We had Tent City. My dad built the World Prayer Center right in front of, uh, of New Life Church. We dedicated that. All these kids from 70 nations were there. Um, and my wife left, took my three boys, filed a restraining order against me, and said that I was abusing them. So I would literally, Jeff, I would introduce people like Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM, on the stage and I would crawl underneath and just curl up because I couldn't find my kids. I couldn't find my wife. And she had left with a, a, a pastor from that church. Um, and so for a month I didn't see my kids and I was being interviewed by police and being accused of all these things. I tried to come home and she'd have some young man in my, my bridal bed and my, my boys would be shaking in the other room and I just go to you know lay on the floor with them and um, so before that month was up, I had not seen them. I was driving my truck in downtown car Springs, just praying. And I saw my three boys and their mom were looking in a window and I said, Tyler, and he grabbed his brothers and jumped in my truck and I, I kidnapped them, took off. Now you need to know, I'm like at the top of my game, like not huge, but a Christian rock star. It's front page of charisma, that kind of thing, you know, and um, really well-known, lots of speaking engagements, 145, 150 times a year. My pastor at the time, who we all know uh, now very well, he looked at me and he said, we know we've, we've researched this. We've sent our elders in. We know that you're innocent, Black, but you're making us look bad. And so we're going to blackball you. And I was blackballed. And in three months, I was bankrupt. And uh, no, my phone stopped ringing. And my 45 staff left. And I just gave the furniture away in our downtown office. And uh, my whole reputation was gone. 1999 Christmas Eve, Jeff, I was driving my truck towards a wall, uh, a movie theater wall um, on the other side of downtown Colorado Springs to kill myself. I'd lost everything. And my dad called me on my cell phone, big Motorola 950, you know, the football <laughs> helmet cell phones. And he called me, he said, what are you doing, son? And I said, I'm killing myself, dad. And he goes, yeah, God just told me that. He said, just go in and see a movie. He goes, I got you. I'm going to carry you in prayer and fasting. And, and, uh, you just go see a movie tonight. And I said, okay, pops. And I went and got you, Jeff. I went and saw any given Sunday, <laughs> a football movie, stupid. But every time I watch it now, I still weep, right? It literally kept me alive. I was living up at the YWAM base. He was with the mission base, uh, in Cheyenne mountain with a incredible guy named Fred Markert was playing his guitar till three in the AM over at the top of my room. And, uh, and I just one step after the other and learn how to keep breathing. Um, but kidnapped the boys, please called me, said, we know you can disappear, but get him back with some friends of mine. So I got him back three years, Jeff. It took us to get full custody. 
went through multiple lawyers. Uh, my first wife had five attorneys. Three of them were killed in the midst of this whole thing. Airplane crashes, oh shot in the head, just insane stuff. I was the first man I've been told to get full custody of his kids in Colorado. Um, for sure, Colorado Springs. So in the midst of all that, I met my widow, um, my wife of 22 years now, Lisa Marie. She was widowed at 25, had two babies, just moved here. She said, I'm going to find a cowboy. Uh, thank God. And she was single for five years. And our friends introduced us. And I, the first night we met, I read her mail. She's like, are you reading my, you know, my journals? What are you doing, man? Who are you? Mm -hmm. And that was it. I, uh, we, uh, seven months later, we were married and we've been married 22 years and it's been fun. I didn't know marriage could be so amazing, but you've got five kids, my three wild boys that are blowing up Barbies. Her two little girls are living this pristine white house. And then we brought Noah into the world, our, our six together. Um, and of course, Jeff, follow me at all. I've got a job, the, the, the killing it again, making lots of money. Got the big 7,000 square foot house on top of Monument Hill, five acres, all the toys boating every weekend and I meet Seth Barnes. Uh, Seth and I, if you want to ask me any questions in this, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but uh, Seth, I was in um, North Carolina. This is a quick little story. North Carolina with a guy named Dr. Tom Davis. We were going back and forth to Russia at the time. We had 200 uh, orphanages in Russia that Tom was ahead of. And we were raising money through companies like Coca-Cola, McDonald's. We were down seeing the bottling company of Pepsi-Cola getting him to sponsor some of our orphans. And Andrew Shearman, who is mine and Seth Barnes' mentor, he's a 77-year-old Brit-American that I've lived with in Spain these last six years. Um, he, he was kind of mentoring us separately. I didn't know Seth yet. He calls me out of nowhere and says, Black, what are you doing? And I'm like, I hadn't heard from him in like four years. I said, I told him what I was doing about with the orphanage in Russia in North Carolina. He goes, oh, good, I'm up in the mountains. Come on up. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I, I felt like you were close to me. Come up. So we drove up. And I walked into this room and it was full of a couple hundred missionaries. And Andrew goes, oh, good. Black's here and hands me the mic. Well, Jeff, I don't know. I mean, I, it's Andrew. So, and I know he embraces Holy Spirit and life. So I just release Holy Spirit in him. They had never met Holy Spirit. It was Father, Son, Holy Bible. And they never knew it. And there's this little guy in the corner just shaking his head. So <laughs> kind of split the room half and half, some pitchforks and some, and but for the next three nights, Seth Barnes, Andrew Shearman, Tom Davis, and I, we just dreamed until 3 a.m. of the world race. How do we initiate the next generation? We dreamed of G42 Leadership Academy, which I'm the director of. It. We have in Spain and here right now. Um, and we just dreamed. And then we just became brothers. We, we literally did a covenant scotch together, made covenant yes. way too early. We didn't know what it meant. We had no idea all the cost that was going to come with it, you know, but we did it and we've stayed to it. We're still at the table to this day. We started the world race in 2005 together. We didn't know what we had. It launched, went crazy. Uh, G42 starts. I started that first in Africa. I moved my whole family, sold everything, moved to Swaziland, Africa, all eight of us. It was crazy. Uh, but we started G42 there and the first children's village, uh, there in Swazi. And now they're feeding and educating 8,000 kids. It had nothing to do with us. We just get to go and birth things and start them. And then we get to leave. Amazing. Um, got removed from Africa. Uh, I was sneaking babies out and doing things the government didn't like. The King's family loved me, but I was on the front page of the newspaper. We had to leave, came back to a to Colorado, which Jeff was the biggest mistake of my life. I, I knew we were supposed to go to Spain 
and, and uh, start with Andrew, the school in, in Mijas, where it is. Um, but my family's like, uh, we're going home. We got home and, and it was just uh, a season where I almost cheated on my wife. I, um, my kids were angry. My boys had picked up rugby in Africa and now we're playing for their high school team and winning every state championship, but they're beating up everybody in the, in the city. Um, my girls were depressed. I just was kind of losing my way as a dad. And as a man, I felt like a huge failure. Uh, I, I failed really mm. bad in Africa mm. and I just, uh, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. And, um, in the midst of that, our middle son, Michael started, uh, he got to go see his birth mom and she got him involved in the cartel. And he started doing underground parties. He became the man of the city. Uh, the, the cartel camp out on our high, high school campuses here in Colorado Springs. And they just sell black tar heroin at Cheyenne Mountain, heroin at Air Force Academy, Air Academy High School. And my kids were at Pine Creek and they're on Molly. Um, my Michael was. Uh, got arrested, um, went to jail. I left him there for a few days, just trying to do the dad thing right. You know, I got him out. We hugged. He repented, mm. got him back to school, got his rugby scholarship re reinstated. Mm. All the things happened. And then on April 17th, we're coming up on the ninth year. Uh, he called me at 1130 and uh, there, I, I didn't see it. And I called him, called him, called him. And at 1205, I got a text and said, sorry, daddy, I have to do this. And he had to die a very violent way, uh, Jeff, um, a way that the cartel would make you die. Um so that's the only thing we could piece together, uh, the way he took his life. Uh, but it was extremely violent. It was in St. Louis at an international business school where he had his rugby scholarship. He was playing USA rugby at the time with his older brother. Um, we went into shock. You know, it was snowing in Colorado Springs. Uh, my wife started raking the front yard at three in the morning. Um, I somehow got to an airplane and got there. Seth Barnes had beat me to St. Louis, uh, a few of our world racers that were original world racers beat me there. Uh, they had to carry me through the whole process. Um, when I, when I walked in and I'll just say this about that, when I walked in and he was laying, they had to put a, a neck thing around him and some stuff. And of course I'm like, I'm just going to read it from the dead. I said, everybody leave. I'm just going to go over. And I went over and laid hands on him and he was cold and it just put me into shock. I don't know if you, if you ever saw Braveheart when the very beginning of the movie, when Braveheart as a little boy walks up to his dad and touches him and it shocks. It's, I saw that after and I'm like, Oh my God, that's exactly what happened to me. Didn't expect him to be cold. So obviously that changed all things. Um, he sat on his dorm room for three hours, uh, rocking and not one person stopped and asked him, uh, what was wrong and what was going on. Um, I, just made a commitment to the Lord, not a vow, not anything else that I would never leave a young person rocking on the floor for three hours without stopping and asking. And so we started the foundation in Michael's name. Um, Seth wanted us back on the world race. We were the original coaches and everybody came through Swaziland at the time. I kept saying, no, 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 no. Just started a company franchise in 32 States. When Michael died, had, had died. Um, my business partner took advantage of that, took all the money and Seth, Got me back down to Gainesville. If you sit, I'm going to warn you, Jeff, as you stay there, you usually end up in another country when you stay with Seth. Um, but I was sitting with him. He's like, we got to get you to Spain. We got to get you to Andrew. And so 2015, September, I had lost everything again. And uh, we didn't even have a spoon. And we loaded Noah up, our youngest, and we went to Spain. All the dads listening right now, like the, the weight of a dad who um, – who loses a son who takes yeah. his, takes his own life. Like that weight 
is, um, yeah, I know some, some listening have walked it, but many of us cannot even imagine. And, and, uh, maybe, maybe just take a moment to, what would you share with us from that besides the, Hey, I'm not going to leave someone who's in a place sure. of pain. That's, you the, po- that's that. the positive mm-hmm. side. That's the coming out of shock side, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it never leaves. Last year, uh, I'm looking at the couch I was sitting on, uh, was the worst, the eighth year. I don't know why my, mm-hmm. my wife and I fought, um, you know, she raised them and she holds it even probably deeper than I do at some levels. Um, and we just couldn't. And, and I know my, you know, my dad's an old cowboy and he's just like, you know, weakness is pain leaving the body. So you're fine. You don't need to grieve anymore. But as men, we don't know how to grieve. And as men, we don't know how to sit in it and own it. You know, we're just going to anesthetize it uh, just honestly. And to have to do that consistently, like the cover of my phone is him walking off the rugby field the last time. And his dates, you know, his, when he was born, November 13th and April 17th, when he died, I hold those sacred. My wife just finished her first book that's being edited right now. It'll launch here in a couple months. And it's all the sacred things. Mm-hmm. And it's her memoir around all of these things wow. um, of, of loss. But then what do you do with that loss? And so just holding him deep in my heart, I've had, I've encountered him a few times, um, just wild and like driving my truck at 2 a.m. from a meeting and just smelling him and mm-hmm. letting, he just let me know that he's okay. I'm okay. That he's proud of me. Uh, and that kind of thing. And so yeah. it's, it's bizarre, Jeff, but it's, it's real and you own it and you hold it. And then sometimes you don't do so well with it. So, mm-hmm. and yeah. then when you say anesthetize, um, is that, are you referring to also like numbing, like choosing to yeah. numb? Yeah. Say. Would you expound a little more on that? Yeah. On I that think, I, again, yeah. What we do is we numb our pain, mm-hmm. right? Either through eating, through exercise. Like I see a lot of addicts just trade one addiction for the other. You know, a lot of guys that were alcoholics and now they're just fanatics about working out. It's like, well, is that just shifting? And I just challenge them. I ask them, are you changing one numbness to another numbness? Something that you could just do so you're not left alone in your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that could be anything, right? Uh, Drugs, alcohol, all of it. And what I'm saying is the only way that we can be transformed by our pain is to move it where it's fragmented in our soul. And we move it into our spirit. I'll, I'll just tell a quick story. Yeah. My, my buddy, Danny C gets a call eight years ago on 4th of July. He's cooking 4th of July lunch, barbecue and everything's happened. His son, his daughter-in-law and his three grandbabies all got killed by a semi and one hit oh my. gone. He said, while he was going down, passing out, he said, father, let this hit my spirit, not my soul. He said, that's what came out of my mouth. And he learned over those eight years is that when we can move our trauma, our pain, our numbness into our spirit, it can be redeemed because that's mm-hmm. what God does. He's a redeemer. Mm-hmm. That's all he does. When we leave it in our soul, we stay fragmented mm-hmm. and we go off the charts. We are, we transmit our anger, our emotions rule our life. And so to me, that's the biggest thing uh, of numbing. And is it worth being transformed by it so that you can transform others? It's yeah. not for us, Right but we get to, we get to transform others. Well, and I, I'm thinking about like the, you, your move back from Swaziland and, and almost it being a, a reassignment of, Hey, I'm not, I don't have that clear per, I mean, the, the ministry of world race and the friends of mine, and now my friends, kids who have been, their lives trajectory right. have been changed. I mean, it's, it's like 130,000, right. Have been through. Is, is yeah, yeah. Like I mean, Seth, Seth, besides YWAM, Seth sent more kids overseas than any person on the planet. So yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so but back to like the transformation, like it's one thing to stay purposeful of like this ministry uh, initiative and then there's this and then I'm serving here and I'm serving here and I'm leading and I'm starting and almost, but that also could be a numbing instead of, instead of actually sitting in. And that's, that's what I wonder if that's what I do is, is man, when I'm purposeful, I feel like there's transformation happening, but is it really happening or is it actually when I have to, the stillness to slow down, I'm not actually seeing ministry fruit or or purposefulness. um, Then I realize, Oh, now I, I need, to numb in some other way because there, there's still something there. Uh, would the you, only way I've learned me? to do with that, bro, is, is I just, every single morning, I've learned to work from rest. I don't need the weekend. I don't need the vacation. I mean, those, those things are awesome. But every single morning. So when, when Adam and Eve left the garden, God said, now you're the mandate is you need to create the space for me to come and meet you. in." I was just at a Christian businessman's breakfast in uh, Phoenix in Scottsdale incredible guys, man. They, three of them got baptized in Holy spirit. Like what in a Scottsdale restaurant? Like, but they're, they're so hungry as young dads. Cause they're like, I don't know how to meet with God. Like you're talking about. I don't even know what that means. And we have to every single morning create or day, whenever works best for your timing. It's for me. It's I have when it's dark and no one's up, I create space for him to come and meet me. I'm not praying. I don't even really know what to pray anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm sitting I'm contemplating on who he is and how good he is. I, I believe, Jeff, the gospel is, is Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. I believe we're good. He made us in goodness. There's generation up to a thousand generations in blessing, right? We, we so focus on the evil and the curses and all the, and God's going, wait a minute, I, I'm good and you're good. And the seventh day, what did he do? He celebrated. And that seventh day never ended. He rested. And so he wants us to learn when we can do that, and we are alone with our thoughts, man, that starts to change it. But boy, is that hard. I'm not yeah. good at it. It's, it's tough. Well, and this is taking it in a, a slightly different direction, but in the world's eyes, there's this up into the right hockey stick of, of like success that you experience, and then a, a plummet and then an up and a plummet and an up. But th- when you mentioned that, that random phone call from a mentor who's like come up to the mountains and there's this setup of covenant that happened that has now affected over a hundred thousand young adults whose trajectory has changed in their families and spouses. Like it just, it's interesting to me that the, the world's eyes of like this plus this plus this equals this. It's like, no, no, <laughs> there was a setup <laughs> moment. No. And, right. and, and yeah, these individuals and the dreams in your hearts and that moment with some scotch, like, uh, would you, yeah, take us into that. Like, give us, I'd love to hear like, how can we have a posture of expecting that's the guy, that's our heavenly father. He loves that, yeah. the setup. Yeah. Would you talk a little more about that? Oh, that's it. I mean, that's it. I, sitting in the goodness of who he is. And literally, I don't know if you've listened to the Bama podcast, Jeff, but if I you haven't. get a chance, it's these guys taking it from a Hebrew perspective. Mm. That the, 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 the whole Bible is one big, incredible story. And he's always, all God's trying to do is teach us to trust the story. Mm. None of us do. Abraham, you know, got Hagar because he didn't trust the, the story. And, but he chose Abraham because he married a barren woman. He chose, chooses those of us that are going to live for other people, right? So it's like this overarching, do you trust the story of your life? And if you can get to that spot and say, because he's good and I'm good, I was born to be loved. I wasn't born to be right. I was born to be loved. I love it in my marriage now, uh, right, Jeff? I, I don't need to be right with Lisa. I mean, we can get in some good fights. Right. And they always end amazing. You know, we love the makeup, but it's like, 
I've just learned I don't need to be right. And I've studied, I've learned how to study her paces and her rhythms so that when she speaks, I got to put her away. She's an introvert. So now I know it's just bagels and, and hot tea for the next four days and nobody's getting near her because that's her pace. And that's what makes her come alive instead of me ripping her all over the planet. And right. And so anyway, that doesn't answer the whole question, but I, you know, that's just how I, I'm, I'm constantly in a school of learning to become that king, that archetype king, right? You're the lover, you're the warrior, you're the sage. You get to be a king when you get in that gray hair stage and you're in your 60s because you finally know something. We really don't know anything until we're in our 60s. I always tell young people and they hate it. The older I get, the less I know. But man, I want to I practice being the lover, opening the door for my wife and you know, dancing to her favorite song, the way you look tonight, no matter where we are, yeah. if there's no dance floor, right? And then that sage, I want to study, I want to learn, I want to know what guys like you are doing and, and get into that space of just making my mind captive to every thought, mm. right? And then the warrior, which most of us were discipled in, mm-hmm. we're, we're, but, but look at the army. They, they get one archetype and now 30, 30 of them a day are killing themselves because we didn't give them the love of the sage. We didn't do discipleship, right? And it all leads to being the king. How does the king steward those and steward his, his, his life himself, his wife, his family, his grandbabies really well as, as, as time's going? Mm. That to me is kind of my, my heart, my goal. Wow. Well, your wife is amazing. Lisa's amazing. And, and I, I spent uh, about four hours with you guys over the last four days um, watching through your series of Fatherless Generation. And I'm going to link in the mm. show notes so that we, we can't remotely touch those four hours of content. But I, I actually, after one of the videos, I went back to my wife, Michelle, and I apologized. I realized that I was operating more like a boy than like a man. And of course, that was a year and a half ago when you recorded it. So if you don't quite remember what you're talking about. Oh, you're... no, I talk about it all the time still. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, but it was the side of me that I was looking for appreciation and gratitude when I was doing this and this and this, helping in all these ways. And it's like, that's my that's my invitation for my Heavenly Father to be a man is you do that without, without expecting the gratitude. You're not doing this to like get something. And so yeah. that concept to me really was like, um, oh boy, I have, oh, it's funny. Oh boy. I'm still acting like a boy, not a yes. man. Um, yes. would you explain a little further into that? Into yeah, that? yeah. I just, I think it's so key, you know, uh, Jung, Carl Jung kind of coined this and I don't think he was a Christian, although I do think he loved God. Um, this first half, second half of life, right? Mm-hmm. My first half, I need to build containers. I need to build that container of university and then kick that sucker over because it does nothing for me. And by the way, the most broken system in the country, right? <laughs> Our university. Uh, I got to build that job. I got to get that that promotion or start that company. And I do, and that's a container, and I kick it over, you know, that marriage, that kid, none of that. When I hit around 30, I should be thinking a little bit different. Any success, once I start walking into the second half of life, that life that I'm, I don't need to be successful, that just strokes my ego. I need to make everyone around me successful. Right. And so what I do a lot with young men and I'm discipling some crazy, awesome young men right now. I love Z. I love the the millennials that are choosing into the pain and not walking away from it. Really easy to disciple, but it's, it's walking them into, and I'll just look at them and say, well, that's what a little boy would do. That's how he, that's how he would respond to his wife. Here's what a man might do. Right. And then they just start thinking that way. Every single time something hits them, what would little boy Gary do here? Or what would man Gary do? Trusting the story, trusting the father, right? Changes everything for us. And, and it's so hard because we're such a narcissistic, consumeristic society. And we've really taught them that in the church, right? Just come and sit and consume. You don't need to go give your life away. 
And we're, we're losing a generation because of that message that we've, we've set immature people from the pulpit around one charismatic guy. We've kind of lost the art of discipleship. We've lost the art of sacred, the sacred spaces in our lives. Right. And so getting young men back to that is, is my whole heartbeat, but that's it. Are you, you need to put your big boy pants on and we're going right. And, and that always has to come through some kind of pain. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, people disagree on this, but it's, I had to have my Michael gone for it to shift me enough from acting like a little boy all the time. Mm-hmm. Now I can still do that. I was at a Kansas city football game with my boys and I got, I just got kind of upset about an Uber ride. It was just stupid. I'm like, Oh my God, your little boy just came out in front of your sons, yeah. which is really good for me. Right. <laughs> because that ordinariness, we need to know that and understand that that we're just ordinary men until mm-hmm. Holy spirit comes on us. And then we're extraordinary. Yeah. Right. Um, and I got to be ordinary in my marriage and in everything I do, my parenting, but that's it. I just, I think it's a real challenge to ourselves to look in the mirror and just my mentor, Andrew Shearman, every morning I've stayed with him all over the world, hundreds of times. It doesn't matter where we are Four thirty-five. I'm going to hear, Oh, Rabbi, so he's going to start singing in the spirit in his room. And then I'm going to watch him while I'm making breakfast, go into the bathroom. And he just speaks in, in tongues in the mirror to himself for about five minutes. And he, he just stirs his spirit, man, every morning. And he's been somebody I could follow mm-hmm. because when you pull back that green screen, he's the same no matter where he is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that to me is what make men. Yeah. Well, you, you went in even a little further to boys look for momentary pleasures and men look for true lasting fulfillment. They build memories. I, some of my notes from that, that yes. four part series and you drew from the last dance, which was, I think it just dropped, you know, two years ago about when you had recorded those, um, so much that, that we don't have time to hit on now, but you mentioned, um, just recently, I think you mentioned something about a story with your, no, this was back in that video series, a story of your son was going to go out with some friends and you felt from the Holy spirit that, that you should just suggest that he stays in that night instead of go out. And you mm-hmm. mentioned that you, um, cause it's your youngest boy that you actually were, were fathering from a softer place than from yes. more, maybe a, a stronger. And he actually was very receptive. The Holy spirit was already nudging him to not yes. go out as well. Um, yes. I'd love to hear just a little bit of the difference in your fatherhood, um, stance or tone, uh, in that moment versus maybe how you raised your, your younger kids. Sure. Yeah. I didn't, you know, all I knew was anger. My dad, dad was an alcoholic, killed his mom in front of him, left home at 18. He didn't know how to father. So, you know, we got tossed through a few barn doors and he'd ride up behind my horse and put a a pine cone in his butt and race me to the barn. And, you know, but it was awesome. And he was a really good dad. He just didn't know how to not be angry. Um, and you know, he's still, he's 83, good old staunch dispensationalist. We were eights on the Enneagram. So we argue like every, everybody leaves the room when we get together still, I'm taking him to lunch today, actually. Uh, but I was angry. I didn't know anything else. So I overspanked, I overdisciplined. I expect, I try to live through my kids to look good instead of live for my kids. Right. And I was our football coach for 16 years. I coached my girls in softball. I was doing all the right things, right? Move them to Africa, show them what the world looks like. But it was out of anger and out of performance, out of religion, religiosity, not out of a space of wanting them just to know their real father, right? So now what I've learned from Ted Hansen, he just wrote a great family book, by the way, incredible, Unpunishable by Danny Silk, which is not a parenting book, but you read the way that those guys parented their kids, it changes everything. So what I say to my son now, and I've been saying this for, to all of them, especially as adults, when you become friends with them, 
this is even better. But my son, 19, asked me today, he said, Dad, I, I don't want to buy this car. It's 17% interest. And I don't know what to do. And, you know, I'm working full time. You know, and I'm like, you know what, son? I trust your heart. I trust you here from Holy Spirit. So you make that decision. And I'll back you. I'll let you know. Or just let me know. And when he's going to go out, like you're, that story you're saying, I'm like, well, have you talked to Holy Spirit about that? Mm -hmm. I'm great. I trust you. I trust your heart. You're an amazing man of God. Make sure you're talking to Holy Spirit and do whatever he says. And when you give that kind of freedom, and now sometimes you got, you know, you get like my Michael that we lost, you know, he'd disappear for weeks on end. He'd come home all dirty and living on the streets. And, you know, I just got to love him in that I couldn't fix him. Right. Right. So when I learned to love my babies by turning them to the father, not to me, I don't, again, I know less now than I did when I was 20. Right. I want to turn them to Holy Spirit and teach them that from a very young age. Right. Of course, there's discipline. Of course, we, we, we have boundaries for babies. You know, you don't go on the street, but we, we teach them through their whole lives. What do you think Holy Spirit's saying? Well, I don't know how to hear him. OK, well, go go in your room, be quiet for a little bit. And then in punishments, the same thing. Right. If I'm going to punish my kids and send them to his room, I'm teaching him to be bitter at me and sit in his anger. Mm. No, I'm going to go with him. And after he's punished, I'm going to spend 30 minutes of just what they love. Right. If they're young kids, yeah. I, we've just got to shift our thinking as parents that yes, discipline, but yeah, we love you even more. And that's why we're yeah. doing this. But what's God saying? So, yeah, well, yeah. I think for the last maybe four or five minutes here, I'll have you expound on the Malachi mandate and any principles from this generational invitation and challenge yes. and promise that we have. And I know it's it's cent central for you and Lisa and your how you're it spending is. your days, your years, your yeah. decades here. Uh, but would you challenge and encourage us from the Malachi mandate? And then uh, in a few minutes here, I'll have you pray for us. Yeah, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, God turns the hearts of the parents to the children, the children's hearts back to last thing written that they put in the old Testament was yeah. the last book 400 and some years later, we get to Matthew, right? They wrote 260 some more laws against women. Most of them during that time. Right. So it's this whole idea of how do we do a multi-generational movement that actually starts to transform the church. I, I love the bride. I love the church. I keep one foot in and one foot out because I know it's a broken system. Right. But I know God uses the bride to change the earth. Like right now with Ukraine, I, I our perspective is kingdom. It's not the media. It's not fear. And we've got a generation full of fear. So when I turn my heart back, every heart I meet, Jeff, is going to look different when they meet. When I walk into the room, the room atmosphere changes because I just walked in the room. When I speak, life happens because when God speaks, life happens. And I'm God with skin on. I'm his representative. Isaiah 32 says, we have a king who rules in righteousness but his rulers rule and rule in justice. And we are his rulers. We rule and we bring justice to every heart we meet. Right. And I'm really hearing clear right now out of Malachi, the Malachi mandate of a multi-generational Issachar moment, right? Second or first Chronicles 12, 32, the Issachar men understood the times. They taught the theologians. They ushered in all of David's mighty men. There's 200 chiefs. It doesn't say a lot about them, but they understood the signs of the times. And I don't believe as a church we have, you know, Y2K, what do we freak, right? You can go back to the Brits and the Vikings. The church just hasn't had a real keen, they just want to build their churches, not people. And we never build ministry. We only build people. And then organically, God breathes on that. The world race, rock the nations, all the things I've touched, I fell into, Jeff. I didn't make them happen, right? I just fell into them. Anything great, we fall into. 
right? And so now he's saying multi-generational boomers, you finally know what to do. You can trust the story. You've actually got some wisdom. Let's give that to the next generation. Xers pull full of piss and vinegar. I'm 55. I'm man. I'm, I'm out there. I've been on the road for three months. I love it. You know, I was just in Washington. I love my Uber drivers are going to get touched by Holy spirit somehow. Right. So, and then we've got millennials who I love millennials. I think the best generation we've ever known, they understand compassion and life and joy. They need to stop complaining and bitching about not being discipled and go do it themselves. Yep. Right. It's time for them to put their big boy pants on their big girl pants on. Yes, you weren't discipled. Yes, you can keep pointing that we failed you somehow. Or go disciple Gen Z. Yes. Go do it yourself. Right. And then we've got this Generation Z, this 23 and younger. I really believe it's on them. Mm. They've got wisdom. They're full of fear. Right. We've got to break that fear. And so, you know, Seth and I are launching the deadlines at the end of April. We're launching the new gap route in September, 17 to 25 year olds, um, four countries that are safer than America. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, it's hard. We've got about 90 kids. I need about 150 of them signed up. I'll send you a text on Kingdom that people can go find information about. Yeah, yeah. But it's because I want to break the spirit of fear off a generation. I was on a Zoom call the other day, and this little girl walks up, and she says, who are you? I'm on with her mom. And I said, I'm Gary Black. Who are you? She said, I'm Brooke. I've been stuck in my room for three days under fear and anxiety, and I heard your voice, and the fear left, and I want to know who you are. And I'm like, that's it, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. We have to break this fear and disciple these kids and send them on risky, crazy adventures so that they can get their own stories. Yes. That to me is the Malachi mandate. Teach the generation how to get their own stories so they can keep telling the miraculous amazingness of how good and amazing our father is. Right. That's it. Gary, we hit about 20% of my questions. <laughs> uh, so this means we're going round two and it'll, it'll be likely in person because my family's coming back towards Colorado here a couple times this yeah, year. So, so game yes. on, I'm going to, I'm going to find you and a campfire or a coffee shop, whatever. We're going to, we're going to get together with some microphones, go round two. Thank you for this conversation. And yes. I will link in the show notes that text. And I have multiple friends who are like gap year missional. How do we get our kids? So, so I know people are listening. They're thinking strategically about their kids who are now a junior or senior in high school. So, so we'll, make sure that's all linked in the show notes. And uh, would you say a short prayer uh, specifically around that fear in activating us dads to demonstrate for our kids that we live with courage, not with fear. Great way to say it, man. Father, in Jesus name, I thank you for Jeff, his family, his little girls. God, I bless this road trip, this RV time that father, you would just show up in that, 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 that motor home and meet them in a deep, amazing way. Kiss the hearts of his babies, kiss Mm -hmm. the heart of his wife, do Ephesians 1.18, just awaken those eyes of our hearts so that we can see better. God, I pray for every man listening, that God, you would meet his family in the same way, that you would begin to turn his heart in such a radical, beautiful way towards his wife, towards his babies, to Father, forgiveness and grace that we don't need to be right. We're going to hold you to things, but we don't have to be right here. Father, would you just allow that to begin as a movement that we as men are breaking the spirit of fear off of our own lives, off of our families, so that a generation can rise up and demonstrate the power of Christ on the planet in such an amazing new way that we'll just sit back and say yes, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 220. Just like always, the conversation notes are in your podcast app or at dadawesome.org slash 
5220. Want to remind you guys, we're jumping into kind of the top 10, the 10 most shareable, the foundational episodes of Dad Awesome. So these will be recap, replay episodes, but they're going to be helpful if you listen the first time, guaranteed. It'll be helpful the second time. If you missed it the first time, well, that's why that's what we're here for. We're helping kind of refeature these uh, these 10 conversations. So that's starting next week. Also want to remind you, Fathers for the Fatherless, our 100-mile um bike ride for men who are saying, I want to come together as a team of men. I want to do something hard on behalf of the fatherless. That is, uh, that's kicking off registration season. We're actually only two or three weeks away from our, our Minnesota ride, the early registration deadline. So F4F.bike to learn more about fathers for the fatherless. We've raised over $421,000 for the fatherless over the past few years. And, and this is going to be the biggest year yet of impact where we're praying for. So guys, thanks for listening today. Thanks for choosing to be dad awesome. Have a great week.